BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, is President Trump using coronavirus to get back at his detractors? State officials believe that if they criticize Trump or fail to praise him sufficiently, they might not get the aid that they need. Then, Times Opinion columnist Frank Bruni joins us for a discussion about what Joe Biden should be doing right now. Joe Biden needs, above all, to be patient. And that's not a word that comes into political discourse a whole lot. And finally, a recommendation. President Trump's response to the coronavirus continues to oscillate between serious and not serious at all. He has finally been persuaded to keep the country largely shut down through the end of April, but he also continues to make wild accusations, like when he suggested this week that hospitals weren't actually using the masks that they were receiving. One of the more troubling aspects of his response is his treatment of governors. The president has made clear that he wants governors to praise him, or the federal government may not help those governors. We've had a big problem with uh, the young, a woman governor from, you know who I'm talking about, from Michigan's. You know, it's a two-way street. They have to treat us well also. They can't say, oh, gee, we should get this, we should get that. If they don't treat you right, I don't call. Michelle, you recently wrote a column comparing these tactics of Trump's to his pressure on Ukraine, the same pressure that got him impeached. Tell us what you meant by that. Well, look, with the Ukraine scandal, he was using foreign aid to get the president of Ukraine to help him in his reelection. You know, he didn't so much want an investigation of Joe Biden as he wanted an announcement of an investigation of Joe Biden on CNN that he could then use to you know, make advertisements and drive the narrative of his reelection. When he was being impeached, um, Pamela Carlin made this analogy that at the time was meant to you know, it was meant to be sort of an absurdity, right? That would point out just how grave what he was doing was. She said, um, you know, imagine if you were in a state that was prone to hurricanes and floods and your governor approached the president to talk about aid. And he said, you know, I'd like you to do us a favor though. So now we're in kind of a similar situation. Now the favor that Trump wants from these governors is not for them to investigate Joe Biden. He just wants them to praise him and pretend that he's doing a great job and not speak out more about the dereliction of the federal government and the fact that they're not getting all the um, resources that they need. But it's not just that he wants them to massage his ego, right? He's using these clips in campaign advertisements. He tried to use aid to extract campaign help from Volodymyr Zelensky. It didn't work. Um, it has worked in the case of New York's governor and California's governor. And, you know, they have no choice, right? They're in this extremely desperate situation. They have, you know, people dying by the thousands in their states. And they have basically said, and there's been numerous stories that 
you know, state officials believe that if they criticize Trump or fail to praise him sufficiently, they might not get the aid that they need. And there's actually an echo of this with the governors as well. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who um, to me has been one of the most irresponsible governors. I mean, he kept the beaches open for a long time. He resisted um, telling people to stay home. He's finally gotten around to doing more of that. But he basically has tried to make this all look like a New York problem. The same way Trump likes to talk about the Chinese virus, it seems like Ron DeSantis is trying to make it seem like the New York virus. Um, He's setting up checkpoints to identify cars coming in from New York. And you sort of see uh, this attempt to, to basically make it a little bit more of a blue state thing. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that that it is, for obvious reasons, hitting denser places, coastal cities, um, harder than it is Red America. There's this quote in the LA Times this week, um, quote, one former White House official said Trump's re-election campaign advisors are terrified that the coronavirus outbreak, which so far has hit largely Democratic coastal cities hardest, will soon scythe across the rural areas that remain deeply loyal to Trump. Right. So they're really only worried about it when it starts killing people in red states. And I mean, this country has been divided for a long time, but the depth of this insult, I mean, the the depth of their utter indifference to the death and misery in parts of the country that did not vote for this man and the simultaneous demand that the leaders of people kind of praise him and kiss his ass as a condition of getting the supplies they need to survive. Um, I mean, if this country was coming bef- coming apart before, I don't see how it comes back from something like this. So I guess my job is to be a little more optimistic, um, which is, you know, not, not necessarily easy to do. But l- let me make a couple of points. First, I don't think so far we've actually ended up at a point where public opinion is incredibly polarized. I think there's sort of an interesting um, dynamic here uh, and where like Trump's approval ratings have gone up more among um, non-voters. There's some weird dynamics here that we don't fully understand. But that but that aside, in public opinion, there's a broad consensus in favor of the measures that have been taken and in favor of taking this seriously. And any differences do seem to be more an artifact of um, you know, rural areas understandably being less panicked so far. And I think this probably affects Trump's behavior, right? There's sort of this stripe of conservative opinion um, that is also represented maybe among his economic advisors that has the idea that, you know, well, we just have to reopen the economy. But that doesn't map onto actual public opinion, um, nor obviously does it map onto either scientific or real economic expertise at the moment. And all of those constraints help explain why Trump went from saying we could open up by Easter to pushing things ahead a month, which I think is actually a totally reasonable policy approach. You want to take this in like three week increments. You don't want to say we're shut down till July 1st. That's it. You want to you know, keep the date well ahead and then assess things as they go. I'm sort of divided on this like governor versus governor question, because to me, there are ways in which sort of states taking responsibility for themselves is a huge part of how in a federal system you have to get through this, right? Like the reason that Washington state is doing better than a lot of places than, than I expected given its early outbreak is that 
you know, not only its governor, but also its public health establishment sort of went out and freelanced on their own when the CDC was falling through. So right, but that's a very different thing than basically saying, you know, this is a problem with those city people keep them out. Right. But I'm, I guess I'm saying I don't I don't see that in public opinion polls writ large. But you'll also notice that I'm not defending Trump because, as always, Trump's behavior is indefensible. Right. I mean, that's sort of I mean, I guess I've just been struck by like how I, I made a quasi joke about this on Twitter yesterday, but it's not totally a joke. There is a sort of strange new sympathy for the mayor from Jaws that we should have from this experience where it just seems like so many different governments are like a week late, right? So Italy Italy has the excuse they're hit first, but then France is a little late. And then the English and the Dutch spend all this time with these complicated herd immunity models. And then they're like, oh, wait, uh, maybe we miscalculated the herd immunity stats because we didn't deal with hospitalization. So I guess we have to lock down too. Um, it, it, again, it's just been striking to me how how many different political contexts and situations and systems have produced these lagging responses. And even, you know, and the cases where it hasn't happened have been like, you know, sort of specific to California. You know, I mean, Gavin Newsom did a great job. The mayor in San San Francisco seems to have done a great job. Um, But that but they're outliers relative to a lot of a lot of places. Mike DeWine in Ohio. I mean, I'm not sure. There's also sort of random things like why is Mike DeWine in Ohio, this sort of, you know, vanilla career politician doing such a better job than a lot of a lot of other governors? It's not it's not clear. Well, you may have just answered that question, Ross, right? Which is Mike DeWine has at least spent his career in government, um, and including in the federal government, and uh, has probably thought about some of these these issues of what government can do and grappled with them in ways that Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, um, uh, may not have done. Sort of, although DeSantis, what was interesting about DeSantis was that he ran as a very Trumpy candidate, but hadn't been that Trumpy in the past, and then got into office and you know, became pretty popular by doing some sort of normal center right things. He had really high approval ratings and he and Trump were sort of seen to be somewhat at odds with each other. And I just want to say, to go back to the beginning, I basically agree with Michelle about, you know, I mean, Trump, you just, there's never going to be a change in Trump. The, you know, the inappropriate behavior is going to persist. We could have an alien invasion and five U.S. cities could be wiped out by aliens and Trump would say an appropriate thing one minute and the next minute would be talking about how now his electoral college margins are going to go up. <laughs> right. But to me, it's less of, at this point, it's less about, you know, I mean, I think the, you know, the kind of inappropriate ranting, the spreading of misinformation, all that stuff certainly matters. Right. So it's no longer just that Trump always says the wrong things or behaves in ways that are um, degrading and inappropriate and cruel. He's actively his mismanagement, his hollowing out of the federal government, you know, we're sort of seeing the results of this. Like I've compared it in the past to a game of Jenga, right? You you pull out one piece at a time, you know, experts in the CDC, obviously the pandemic response team in the National Security Council, just this total hollowing out of bureaucratic expertise. And now it's all come tumbling down. And in the places where this thing is the most ferocious, we're just on our own. Well, and all of that is going to lead to an enormous amount of unnecessary suffering and death and tragedy, and um, which is really outrageous. The amazing thing about this is that 
um, to the, the the country right now, uh, the best thing going on in the country are these governors who are taking it seriously, um, who are both Democratic and Republican. I mean, I can't think of any Democratic governors who are doing a really bad job, but the governors doing a really good job are both Democratic and Republican. Republican Mike DeWine in Ohio, Larry Hogan in Maryland, Jay Inslee, a Democrat in Washington, uh, Andrew Cuomo, a Democrat in New York. They're not only the ones who are protecting people and reducing the toll of this terrible virus, but they're also the ones who are probably Donald Trump's best political friend because the worst possible thing for Trump's reelection is that this just drags on for months and months and months because of his uneven response. But there's now a chance that the combined response of these governors is actually going to meaningfully bend this curve um, in in coming weeks or months. And the country might be able to get back to something semi-normal by the summer, which is really the most important thing for Trump's politics. I mean, I'm left thinking Trump is harming himself politically, whatever the polls say in the moment, um, and the governors are actually helping him. Does that sound right to both of you? You know, maybe, but I mean, I I guess I don't think of it that way, right? Obviously, if there's a way to eliminate coronavirus and Trump gains a little bit in the polls, that's a trade that I think even people like me who hate Trump to, you know, the core of my being would happily make. But from what I understand, most experts seem to think that if we get rid of this thing in the summer, it comes roaring back in the fall, right? Apparently, that's how pandemics tend to work. And so you know, there's, there's, I don't see any indication that if we, you know, somehow do bend the curve enough to go back to more, to normal life in a few months, that this administration is even capable of using that time to prepare for a second wave. I mean, I think, and this is something we haven't, you know, this is beyond our areas of expertise, but I think what happens in the fall ultimately will depend much more on things that are going on with private industry and sort of public-private partnerships around treatment options. Um, you know, the vaccine is probably not going to be here, obviously, by the fall, um, but we may have better treatment options for the disease in six months than we do right now. And certainly we will have better testing than we do right now. And I can't tell, you know, I, I'm quite sure that Donald Trump is not personally making good choices on on these fronts. Although I think some of his instincts, you know, I think his sort of touting of chloroquine is, you know, is is reckless, but his instinct that you want to look for things like that is sound. And you do need a little more sort of urgency and experimentation around around drug treatments right now than you got from the FDA in its approach to testing. So in that sense, the spirit of we need to be trying more things is a healthy spirit that does have some actual bureaucratic obstacles to overcome. But I mean, that to me is just what's going to matter the most for the fall is, you know, I mean, one, obviously, we will understand more about how this disease spreads and, you know, whether, you know, what kind of distancing works and so on. But I think having having a better treatment regimen that coexists with people getting diagnosed quicker is the only thing that will really fend off a second wave would be my guess. Well, let's leave it there. We're now going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with some news about the show. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Before we start our second segment, we have some news about the future of this podcast, and it is bittersweet news for me personally. This will be my last episode of The Argument because I'm about to take on a new project at The Times. I am very excited about that project, and I'll have more to say about it soon, but it is not easy to leave this show. I have loved doing it, and I've loved interacting with so many of our listeners in so many different ways. I'm also going to really miss talking every week with both of you, Michelle and Ross. But I also use the word bittersweet for a reason. There is a sweet part of the bittersweetness, and it's not just because of my new project. The argument is not going to go anywhere. Instead, it is going to have a fabulous new co-host, and really, he is the best possible person I can imagine for the job. It is our fellow columnist, Frank Bruni, who is so familiar to so many Times readers. I think that Frank may have had the single most interesting career of any Times journalist over the last couple decades. Just listen to this list. He's covered Congress, the White House and presidential campaigns. As an op-ed columnist, he helped put Mayor Pete Buttigieg on the map. Frank has been the Times chief restaurant critic and the Rome bureau chief. He's written a book about the Catholic Church, hear that, Ross, as well as a bestseller about college called Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be, which is good advice for all those high school seniors who just found out where they will be going to college. So as much as I will miss being an argument co-host, I'm really looking forward to turning into an argument listener as Frank and Michelle and Ross take the show from here. And we thought it would be fun to have one segment with all four of us. So we asked Frank to join us today, a kind of passing of the baton. Frank Bruni, welcome to the argument. Welcome, Frank. Welcome to Thunderdome. <laughs> hey, guys, I am I am beyond honored to join the podcast, but I'm even more humble to take the baton from David as if, as if I could ever carry it as he has. But thank you for having me. Frank, have you ever done a podcast before? I have uh, I have been a guest host on someone else's podcast. It was a culinary podcast, and uh, they brought me aboard to do an interview with Alec Baldwin. Um, and I've been <laughs> yeah, I've been yeah, which which is it's not it's not hard to interview Alec Baldwin. You just basically say a few words and then you sit back and let the words wash over you. Um, he's quite a talker. Uh, and I've been a guest on many podcasts, but this is uh, new territory new territory for me. So I hope everyone will be. Uh, patient and charitable. Well, you're going to love it. I predict and the audience is going to love having you. Um, So let's get into our second segment. With coronavirus dominating everything, the 2020 Democratic race has all but disappeared from the national consciousness. Super Tuesday feels like it was years ago, and the race is now in a strange limbo with Joe Biden far ahead, but Bernie Sanders still campaigning. We want to take a few minutes to talk about the race and specifically about Biden, what he should be doing during this stage. It is a tricky moment for him. He doesn't really have a government job. 
Meanwhile, President Trump is holding daily news conferences and Trump's approval ratings are rising. Frank, you just wrote a column. The headline asked a good question. Should Biden freak out about the Trump bump? So what's the answer? Well, the answer is that he should not. I mean, we've been talking a lot. You, you, uh, our listeners have probably read tons about Trump's rising approval rating and how in head-to-head matchups with Biden, you know, hypothetical ones, he's doing better than he was doing a month ago. But his numbers are still pretty low. And I think what everyone needs to keep in very careful perspective is you expect a president's approval ratings to rise at a times of, time of national crisis. After the September 11th terrorist attacks, Uh, George W. Bush's approval ratings rose as high as 90 in some polls. Um, We think of the Iran hostage crisis back in 1979 as a debacle for Jimmy Carter, but initially his approval ratings rose significantly into the high 50s after the hostages were taken. By contrast, everyone's making a big deal of Donald Trump's numbers rising as high as 50 and no higher Uh, in measures of his approval rating. So I think there's as much reason to think that Trump is not going to get a bounce out of this crisis as there is to be freaked out that he's getting a huge one. And what do you think about how Biden himself is handling it, right? He he gave a good speech, then he kind of disappeared. Now he's trying to speak publicly every day, but it turns out that the media both criticizes him for not doing enough, but then also doesn't cover it when he gives press conferences. Yeah, no, he's actually he's actually much more out there um, than the popular perception is. It's just that it's not being covered. It's not cutting through. I think Joe Biden needs, above all, to be patient. And that's not a word that comes into political discourse a whole lot. Uh, right now, Donald Trump commands the national stage in a way that no one can compete with. And it's partly because I think Americans, those who aren't completely turned off by him forevermore, those who are willing to give him a little bit of a benefit of the doubt, uh, they're they're looking at him as positively as they can because they want to believe on an emotional level that they're being led by someone who can lead them through this. But David, you made a very good point in something you wrote recently, that, that time will tell, that in the next weeks, in the next months, either we'll see the fruits of good management of this or we'll see uh, something very, very much the opposite, which is the consequences of mismanagement. And he can't daily news conference his way out of that sort of judgment. Michelle, you've obviously been anxious about Biden as a candidate from the very beginning. Um, You and Frank share that anxiety. And I'm interested, what parts of this crisis do you think fit particularly poorly with Biden as a nominee? Um, I mean, partly just the lack of dynamism, right? You sort of, I mean, I think about what it would be like to have a nominee like a Jay Inslee, right? A person who was kind of obviously extremely vigorous and full of plans and action and who could somehow convey that and could convey the idea, I think, to the American people that, you know, help is on the way as opposed to just restoration is on the way. Um, And then I'm anxious about Joe Biden's, um, whether the scope of his vision meets the moment, right? I mean, I understand that there's always been a lot of, I think, more resistance among the electorate to Medicare for all than Bernie supporters like to admit to themselves. But this is certainly a moment that is revealing the you know, kind of horrible inadequacy of an employer-based healthcare system. And so you want somebody 
maybe who has a more expansive vision for how you're going to, you know, again, not just go back to the Obama years, but put what's going to be a really broken country back together again, hopefully in a way that is, um, you know, kind of better or more, more just than what came before. Yeah, I think so. I wrote, you know, I wrote the Times's endorsement of Joe Biden back when we were all supposed to do endorsements of candidates, um, and nobody, nobody else wanted Biden, and and this was just before his turnaround. And you know, the argument I made in that piece was that Biden was a way of sort of postponing questions about the future of the Democratic Party. You know, should it be a party of the upper middle class or the working class? Should it be a party of, you know, sort of the technocrats or the socialists? Um, Biden wasn't going to resolve any of those questions, but he was someone who was acceptable broadly to the party and had a good chance of beating Trump. And that might be enough. And, you know, I, I think the pandemic helped helped him sort of put away Sanders, I think, sort of as a back as background noise for the last few primaries. It probably helped Biden to be sort of the candidate of establishment continuity at a time of sort of looming trauma. But since the pandemic, I mean, he just, you know, yeah, the, the continuity thing just doesn't, it doesn't sell as well to me. And the fact that he is literally of the age where people are most vulnerable to the thing ravaging our country is sort of an extra, it's like an extra twist in a twist of the knife, I guess, where, you know, you sort of see him on television and the fact that he seems old is, it's, it's a little more frightening than it was when he was just on, on a debate stage. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, and I think that's where this fantasy of draft Cuomo is coming from, right? And if we had started the primary a couple months later, this would all be playing out very differently. I mean, this seems like a good place to note that there is a sexual assault allegation against Joe Biden that has been touted by particularly left media and Bernie Sanders supporters. And I think at the stage where we're recording this podcast, there hasn't been enough in-depth reporting on it for us to have an argument about it. But it's worth it's, you know, the idea of a personal scandal is, I suppose, one of the few things that I could imagine you know, having some impact on Biden's ability to hold the nomination. So I feel a little bit sheepish because this is the sort of story that ordinarily I would comment on. And I'm reluctant to do so as long as I know that there's a lot of outlets who are trying to run down this story. And there's just a lot about it that we don't know, right? I mean, on the one hand, I think that every woman should be given the benefit of the doubt. Um, on the other, you know, I'm given a little bit of pause by the accusers, um, kind of florid odes to Vladimir Putin. And so I don't know what to make of it at this point. And I think we'll have a better idea of what to make of it after, you know, our own outlet and other kind of serious journalists who are looking into this story, um, look into it. You know, I wouldn't be heartbroken if a scandal forced the Democratic Party to replace Biden with someone else. 
You know, some people have been suggesting that what Biden needs to do is name a kind of shadow cabinet, um, a group of people who are his advisors and who might end up being in his actual cabinet and who can go out and speak um, sometimes with more expertise than he can on a subject or more vigorously than he can. Um, and I'm sort of torn because on the one hand, my instinct is, look, in the end, Biden's sort of going to, in all likelihood, we don't know, but end up looking like kind of a generic Democratic candidate. And this will be essentially a referendum on Trump. On the other hand, an idea like that um, strikes me that it doesn't sound terrible. F- Frank, what's your take on that particularly, but also kind of what else Biden might be able to do at this point? You know, I, I think what he needs to do, David, honestly, is is really just kind of wait it out and offer uh, daily criticism of what the Trump administration is doing without getting too barbed or sounding too partisan because there are plenty of other people to do that. But I also wanted to respond, if, if I might, to two things that, that Ross said about the Biden situation. I think Ross is absolutely correct that at its dawn, the pandemic probably uh, redounded, if you'll forgive the phrase, to Joe Biden's benefit in terms of what happened uh, on and right after Super Tuesday in terms of Biden seeming like a reassurance. But now, actually, it's precisely what has left him in this bizarre political limbo, because with these various primary contests pushed back, he hasn't been able to expand the kind of delegate lead that he was poised to. Um, the whole kind of moment of decision when people can say he's clearly the nominee, uh, when Sanders would have to acknowledge defeat, that's all been pushed back. Um, and that's part of what really makes this uh, a singular situation that that Biden is navigating uh, that no one's had to navigate before. But the other thing I want to respond to that Ross said is we keep talking, I've done it, all of us have done it, about how old Biden is, how old he seems. And we never pause to say Donald Trump is no spring chicken. And you take away the layers of orange makeup and the team of elves who work on his hair, and I doubt he'd look any better on camera than Joe Biden does. No, but I think that's this is part of where Trump's sort of inappropriate behavior is politically helpful to him in the sense that he's, you know, you know, he's out there doing these press conferences, not doing social distancing. He was still shaking people's hands. All, all of this is bad, but it also projects a certain image of, you know, of sort of being in the fray in a way that Biden's more responsible. You know, I'm in a room talking to you alone on cable news. Maybe he doesn't. I feel like I'm already having previews of arguments to come between Frank and Ross. (laughs) Frank, thanks so much for coming on a week early. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. And we'll talk to you next week. We'll see you next week, Frank. And and by see, I mean communicate with you through an appendage of, of tubes and wires from undisclosed locations. In our new digital universe, yeah. So now it's time for our weekly recommendation where we recommend something to, in the old days, it was take your mind off the news. Now, I suppose it's to occupy yourself during the long hours of quarantine. And technically, I don't think it's your turn, David, but since it's your last show, your last chance to shape the consumption habits and entertainment options of our listeners, why don't you have at it? What do you have for us? 
My pleasure. So it was almost two years ago that the three of us, Ross, Michelle, and I, along with some of our colleagues, started hashing out the idea for this show in, in various conference rooms around the New York Times when we were still allowed to go into the office. Uh, and the idea in some ways was simple, which is um, none of us right now spend enough time having serious but respectful disagreements um, with other people. Um, it's easy to be surrounded by people who agree with you. Most of us are much of the time. It's easy to turn on the television or social media and see people screaming with each other. Um, and we wanted to create a space where the disagreements were real. The three of us disagree about a lot, particularly Michelle, you and I have a lot of disagreements with Ross. Um, and we could have those disagreements, um, uh, and see if we might learn anything from each other, even if it was just how to make our own arguments better. Uh, and I guess looking back on it, uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. It hasn't always been easy. I mean, we've talked about this. Ross, you and I have had some pretty intense conversations about climate change. Michelle and Ross, you guys had some pretty intense conversations before the midterms. And my guess is you may have some intense ones before the general election this year. Um, but I really, um, to me, it's been a, a really wonderful experience. And so maybe it's obvious, but it's also heartfelt. My recommendation to our listeners, particularly in a time when it's not so easy, is make the extra effort to find people who you disagree with and figure out some ways uh, to engage with them. Um, it really is worth the effort and the occasional stress. Oh, David, that's so nice. That's that's really, really sweet, David. Um, I've been trying to do that with my children under quarantine, and I have to say it's not not working that that well. There's a lot of there's a lot of strong disagreements in my household, and I've been trying to take lessons from our show and apply them uh, to the to the quarantine era, but I'm still I'm still hoping to sort of nail it down. Um, but yeah, I mean, David. I mean, first of all, I was totally right about climate change. And especially now that we've shut down the global economy, it's not going to be a problem. Um, May you be but, right about that, Ross. But, but, really, but really, this has just been, it's been an incredible and terrific, I'm going to sound like Donald Trump, it's been the most terrific, the most amazing experience. Um, and I do hope that our listeners take your recommendation seriously and find people that they can argue with on a weekly basis who aren't their children or their spouse. Well, David, this is heartbreaking for us. Um, I mean, for people who listen to this show, David has done, I think, more than anybody else to create it. Um, it was his vision in the first place. You know, he kind of made it happen from the beginning. And it is just, we're really, really, really going to miss you. Thank you. I mean, it's very clever of you in a way to, you know, pull this fast one on us in the midst of a global pandemic, because things are so serious around the world that I can't express the, you know, degree of anger and sorrow that I actually feel about you, about you leaving the show. But I second everything that Michelle says. And, you know, the fact that you have kept Michelle and I on civil terms with one another over the past 18 months alone is, a, is an achievement that will you know, it's not quite up there with developing a cure for the coronavirus, but it's it's a pretty impressive achievement for our times. And and we hope that, you know, hopefully the show will run for 20 years and there will be another David Leonhardt era um, in its history in the future. And now I'm going to have to find new people to argue with. No, you can still argue with us. We just don't have to take Well, this. we're still here, man. There's Fair enough. Fair enough. You can call call me any anytime, David. Yeah, we're like literally not going anywhere. So, David, one more time as I get a little misty here. What's your recommendation? 
my recommendation is have your own arguments and listen to this podcast. Oh, bye, David. Goodbye. Bye, guys. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have ideas or questions, please leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or a review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by James T. Green for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Michaela Teodori, and Ian Prasad Philbrick. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. I want to say a special thanks to Francis Ying, Freddie Chavez, and the team at Kaiser Health News, as well as thanks, of course, to the whole team at Transmitter Media. If you want to continue to follow my writing, subscribe to my newsletter by Googling David Leonhardt Newsletter. The Argument with Frank, Michelle, and Ross will be right back in your podcast feeds next week. Don't miss it. Sure, five, four, three, two, one. Da, da, da. Uh, the mowing stopped, and I have—I literally have a blanket over my head per James's instructions. <laughs> I've never felt sillier in my life. It looks like I'm giving myself some like facial or something, like I'm in a steam thing or something. <laughs>